Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is my old friend Jeff Graham of Bandera Partners. We're going to talk about his fabulous book, Dear Chairman, and how he invests, what he does as a an activist, what he likes in the small cap space. We'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to see you. It's great to see you too. Since we did our uh, our tour of CFA uh, societies around the states, how many did we get through? Three you have states a fair in Canada. Number. Well, you know, like the like the one thing that I do feel like is like when you tour with people, that you really get to know them better. You Your know, like, rider you know, was much more impressive. You know, when you than travel that. with people, <laughs> you had the big rider, all the brown M and M's taken out of the. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. So like four uh, sticks of butter. <laughs> You know, well, nine different kinds of beers on the rider, like that kind of thing. Um, how do you transition from being a musician to being a hedge fund manager? That's one of the more unusual routes that I've heard. Yeah, I think there were two big factors there. Um, like the first was like like this magical thing called business school. I mean, I think like like for all that people crap on MBAs, it is a versatile degree. There's a lot of career changers that uh, that go through it. And look, like an MBA might not be the right choice if you're a junior analyst at a hedge fund and you want to continue in, in the hedge fund business. But for someone like me, it was perfect uh, because it gave me this like little bit of of credibility that I basically didn't have. And then the second half of that equation was just incredibly fortuitous timing that um, – like to the extent I had any credibility, it was pretty much just as an MBA, which like today probably wouldn't get you that far if you're trying to get a job at a hedge fund. Even um, a Columbia MBA? Well, you know, a funny thing has happened at Columbia and in, in, like in that if you want to be in the investing program there and take all the best investing classes that you have to apply for it and you have to kind of have a background right. of – like of interest in investing. And, you know, I didn't have that. So like, I was very lucky that I even got to take all those classes. And then after taking them, it was, you know, I came out in 2003. I began looking, you know, for internships in 2002. And, and that was like the wild west. It was, there were all these brand new funds launching. Um, the fund I ended up uh, working for was not the world's best fund. It, it like, it ended up uh, blowing up spectacularly. It's, probably in some ways a blight on my record but it was great for me i learned so much there um i what, love what do you learn on a fund that blows up well it blew up after i was there but um I, I mean i'm sure that being there if you were junior and not you know well you know well, suffering the pain like i'm sure that you learn a lot about just well, bad decisions and emotional decisions and yeah, I, 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 even when i was there so um it was you know, uh, one of these uh, funds that began as 
as as a merger arb fund. Um, it was called HBV Capital, and it uh, was essentially the merge arb desk um, from Allen and Company. Right. And the guy who ran it was this guy Mickey Harley, who is who is a brilliant guy, had lots of energy, and he was a like a, you know a real believer in building to grow. You know, like he would always, you know, quote Bill Parcells about you know well you know well building the team, you know even when you're losing all this kind of stuff, just we'll build build build, and um and he kind of had the uh, the vision of of uh, moving beyond merge arb. Right. So he built a, like a multi-strategy fund, uh, got lots of institutional investors and like was clever, like about being like, well, we're here in the cycle. Like now you need to, you know, take some capital out of your margin allocation and put it in distress. We've built a great distress team, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, mm -hmm. so I was on that dis uh, distress team and um and like it got out, like I think in 2003, that fund got to a billion three, which for that time was like a very big fund. And I feel like could have become, you know, one of the like the mega hedge funds if they had played their cards right. Now, what they did is they sold uh, to Mellon Bank. And so Mellon owned 50% of us. And it just began to be hard to compensate the team. Um, the partnership with Mellon, I think, didn't help on the fundraising side like they thought it would. You know, so they kind of gave up 50% of the upside with uh, the promise of the benefits of being on this platform. And like with hindsight, they didn't need that platform. And I think that, you know, like it became hard for them to keep people. So I left there with my boss. Um, because it just became economical for us to uh, to try to do it on our own. And how how has uh, starting in distress influenced the way you invest to this day? Um, I think that this uh, uh, distress is is an awesome place to learn um, because a it's a like like there are huge liquidity swings and you know so you're often buying things that they become very liquid and they become extremely illiquid, you know? So distress bonds, like, you know, like there can be issues that will trade, you know, $200 million on one day. And then over the next year will basically not trade. Right. And so, you know, learning how to kind of, uh, you know, we'll deal with the liquidity is extremely valuable. You know, uh, learning how to value companies with debt and with leverage is extremely valuable. I, I've, I've often been surprised how lots of um, um, investors can either be allergic to debt and, you know, not want to think about it at all or not really know how to think about it. So, like, you'll see people and, and you saw this a lot in the financial crisis where it's like, well, this thing is, it well, you know, uh, three times, you know, TEV to EBITDA or something like, well, yes, but you have to think about like the debt and the liquidity. Um, and then I think distressed uh, trading you know where you're dealing with you know with only voice brokers right. like they're extremely sharp but extremely scummy you know <laughs> um like you're dealing with sharks like that's a trial by fire like you learn well so much like the first like five times that you just get hosed on a trade <laughs> um and then i think you learn a lot about governance because ultimately like 
you know, when companies like hit trouble, um, you learn a lot about the management team and whose uh, side they're on. And so I think it's no coincidence that lots of the kind of early distress funds, you know, um, Elliott Associates, um, you know, Appaloosa, you know, I mean, all these funds like began in distress, um, you know, Klarman, like is a great example, right. like that they all kind of, you know, they branched into activism, they branched in like, you know, to more value equities, like it's a great place to start. And, you know, by the time I got done with the stress, I kind of hated it. Um, like, I feel like it's a little bit of an economies of scale business um, that if you're, you know, because my first job was at a very big distress fund, right? And then, like, my boss and I went to launch, like, a niche, <laughs> uh, you know, a startup uh, distress fund. And it's hard to get the flow and the information and and the trading. And, and you realize that that's a business where there are extreme economies of scale. Right. And so it's not good for the little guy in the way that, you know, that equities are. So you launched a distressed fund after uh, working in the, the bigger one. Is that is that Bandera or is that uh, no. a pre? So that was a fund called Arclo. So I went to HBV, which was um, Harley Bean von Furstenberg in 2002. And I was and then they got bought by Mellon, I think that same year. In 2004, my boss at HBV, the director of of research on the distress fund was this guy named Greg Schrock. And he and I uh, launched um, a long short distress fund called Arclo Capital. So we were seeded by uh, um, a seed investor uh, um, called uh, Protege Partners. Mm -hmm. And um, and we did the kind of classic deal. I think it was, uh, you know, 25 million with Protege and, um, you know, got an office at, you know, um, a, you know, like a like a classic hedge fund um, hotel that the broker uh, ran, and tried to raise institutional money, uh, beginning at 25, and that was a like a really like hard hard game, and I got like like began to like to get like disgruntled with the stress, and so in 2006, um, like I did Bandera, which was a, like a lot more you know Bandera is just a concentrated you know, uh, mostly value, um, you know, mostly long only. Well, let's talk about Bandera. So, how, what was the what was the initial plan? What's the strategy for Bandera when he launched? So, I was coming out of this like long short distress. So, well, you know, it has to be distress, and then you have to keep a diverse long book. And there were two of us, so it was a shitload of work. And like, I, like I felt like a, like a lot of the work was not on stuff that was really gonna, you know, impact the returns. And I wanted to just like have the kind of classic Joel Greenblatt, you know, well style, well back in the day, which is the not special the new situation Joel Greenblatt version. style, yeah. but the concentrated like eight positions. The yellow book, not the blue book. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, and I, you know, so I kind of like, uh, like began asking and like around, is there anyone that like, like would go on, on, you know, like would go in on this, like with me. And, and I, I mean, I remember I met with Joel Greenblatt and, and John Petrie. Um, and, you know, it was a nice meeting, but, you know, but they were like, well, keep in touch. Like, you know, you're still learning. <laughs> um, and so, 
so I had met this guy, Greg Belinsky, who is my current partner. He ran a, um, a fund called Lime Capital that was doing like essentially what I wanted to do, um, you know, concentrated, uh, you know, with long biased, you know, with mostly equities. And he was in a funny situation where Lime was a part of this, like the LimeWire uh, um, tower research empire that was, you know, mostly um, um, a high frequency trading uh, brokerage and shop. And um, so it like was not a great fit, like, like for him being a part of tower and, and, you know, so he shut that down, you know, join, uh, you know, join forces with me. And like, we launched uh, a Bandera in at the end of 06. And what uh, was the do you remember the first position you put on in the fund? Yeah, I do. The first thing that we bought, like, uh, you know, we had this long term kind of like we had met. Like we both had bought this thing called UCI Medical Affiliates. It was a PPM that did doctor's clinics. I had looked at it at I'm, I'm an HBV, my first job. It, it had gone into bankruptcy, but they preserved the equity. And I knew that I liked it then. And so when we launched Arclo, it was the first Arclo position. At some point, I got Lime into it. Um, <laughs> and so Lime and Arclo both owned it. So when we launched uh, Bandera, we bought it. And then we ultimately bought out the Lime and Arclo positions. Right. And so that was our first one. And um, it, it was a fascinating situation where it was – uh, the you know the PPM industry, you know, which is like a physician practice, um, you know, with management, had been this huge uh, bubble in the late '90s, and all these things failed. Um, but this company had a little niche where it, it was actually performing well, um, like it overexpanded and filed for bankruptcy, but was at its core a, like a, um, a good business. And so we bought up about 15% of the company, and in the time that we were buying it up this catastrophe happened that the local uh, blue cross affiliate, like they were based in South Carolina, the blue cross affiliate bought control. Like they got over 50%. And so we were the minority holder oh. with this big, um, and blue cross had a conflict of interest. Like they loved the, like, like the network, you know, this was like the first urgent care chain and they love the network because it provided cheaper care to their customers and so there's this like inherent conflict and then shortly after that the CFO was stole from the company oh. um, the stock got delisted they went dark on their filings the CFO went to jail it was this whole crazy saga and and that was our first investment <laughs> and you're already holding at that stage it wasn't yeah yeah and like we made this kind of like once this the CFO fraud had happened. Uh, we, you know, went down there to figure out what was going on and made the foolish mistake of signing an NDA. Oh. And so we got locked in. The, like the stock went, like got down to like got a five cents at one point. Um, and you and, can't buy. And we couldn't buy more because yeah. we were restricted. <laughs> so like we ultimately sold that business for six fifty um, in two thousand and eleven. It got down to like to five cents. I think it was 09 or, or, or 2010. How and, did you, you know, just watched it? How did you ascertain that it was still a good business despite the fact that it had gone into bankruptcy? What was the, what was the insight that you had there? Yeah. So they had done this thing where they 
had expanded regionally, like had bought some, you know, some clinics in like in some adjoining states in Georgia and Tennessee. But the core business in South Carolina was uh, still good. And it was, you know, well, mostly homegrown. Like the real problem with the physician practice, uh, you know, management uh, model is like not so much that it was an inherently, you know, well, bad business to roll up doctor practices. It was that a lot of these roll ups in the late 90s were done really uh, stupidly. And they basically, uh, you know, well, cashed out the doctor right. and, you know, and eliminated their incentive to work. Right. But these core clinics um, that UCI owned, they were called Doctors Care. You know, they had built up that network, um, you know, over a decade. And, you know, they opened all the sites themselves. You know, it was a really good business. It was, you know, generating positive cash flow. Um, it traded at an absurdly low multiple, you know, once you backed out like the, like the money losing parts and, you know, through bankruptcy, they negotiated this deal to like, to basically, you know, keep like the, like, uh, the creditors at bay to, um, like, like, like to have a payment plan, but to keep the equity whole. And so it was kind of the, like the, like the perfect well, situation. It was like, you know, post-bankruptcy, small completely, you know, a liquid in this industry that everyone thinks that every company in that industry is a house of cards. And so right. like it all kind of came together. Right. And so then we bought it and it went to five cents <laughs> <laughs> and couldn't buy more. Exactly. So do you, do you continue to run as concentrated as you set out? Are you still eight positions or have you, do you, do you hold more positions now? You know, I would um, answer that by saying, like the like the answer to that question is that we are pretty much like the same concentration as we were back then. Um, like we'll do fewer, you know, twenty percent positions, I guess, so slightly less concentrated. But I'm certainly, as I've done this for longer, I'm way more dubious of concentration. Right. Like I think that concentration is a incredible. It's like a very double edged sword, and that it, um, you know, I mean, I've told you this like this before but you know uh, 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 um, so much of investing is just trying to stay rational and concentration just totally mucks that up yeah i've been mucks i said mucks <laughs> i i have been through a, a a fund winding up because it was uh excessively concentrated into a single security so it's the thing that i'm most nervous about that's that was my introduction yeah. that they can go backwards even in very good positions it just if the liquidity goes away it doesn't matter how undervalued the thing is even if it's trading at discount to cash it just doesn't matter yeah and you see it over and over again in like in in in, in value funds and activist funds and in distress funds like you get your one big position that you're involved with so you kind of fall in love with it and then you're locked into it and you know like you can you know, we'll still be right. I mean, you know, um, my first kind of big investment at HBV was in Denny's. And Denny's, 20% um, of Denny's was owned by Gotham, which was Bill mm -hmm. Ackman's uh, fund. And so we bought like a lot of our shares uh, from Gotham and we owned the bonds too. And I, and, you know, and, and I remember um, I had been involved in the stock and the bonds and someone emailed me his, you know, quarterly letter from, I don't know, it was like, well, you know, maybe a year ago that explained their, like their whole long thesis on Denny's. And he was exactly right. Um, he got, 
um, everything about it right. Um, I talked to him on the phone about it. He was extremely gracious and explained that like he still believed in the thesis, but but um, you know they had to sell and and um, you know like, you can be right and still get hosed by concentration. Right. Did, you, you, your first position uh, was that was that an would you characterize that as an activist position or when did the activist uh, philosophy and strategy develop? How did that occur? Well, you know, so at HBV at my you know very first job, because it was a distressed uh, fund, it like inherently did lots of activism. And then I like, you know, because I was not a lawyer, um, I kind of carved out a niche there as like the equities guys or just like I did more of 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 the equities or like like the post uh, you know well, reorgs and a, and a lot of that was activism so when we bought into denny's you know we owned the bond and the stock and you know we ended up doing a 13d i um, i got to write the 13d myself you know uh, we led um a, um a pipe that you know um you know ultimately uh, led what's, what's to what's a pipe for folks who don't who haven't heard that expression before sure it's a private in, um, investment in public equity you know, so we um, had tried to do um, just like a, um, a rights offering to like to backstop a rights offering, um, but the company wanted to raise more, and so the way to do that was to do a pipe. And so we got um, a bunch of other investors, and we did it. I remember it was at a dollar ninety. I don't remember how many, how big it was. I think it was like sixty or eighty million dollars, maybe more. I think that HBV did sixty. Um, and, you know, they had a lot of debt and this allowed them to refinance all their debt. And it really gave that business a fresh start. And, you know, that was in the day where, you know, like there were lots of ideas back in the early 2000s that were like, here's a very easy, simple to understand business. It trades at a discount because of the leverage. And we can fix this leverage with a little bit of activism. And so it was I mean, we did a lot of those kind of deals and they almost always worked. Um, it's not as easy anymore. Like, like you know, that's more priced in now than it is, right. back, you know, than it was back then. So Bandera was um, in, the, in that initial position and probably, I don't know if you characterize it as an activist or accidental activist, but <laughs> what, what about the first position where you um, went into it anticipating that you might have to do some activism or where activism was the thesis for what you were going to do? Yeah. And I think, to be honest, there was a little bit of naivete there. Like, like I think if I was in that position now, when Blue Cross gets to 50%, I don't know what I do. I think I go to them and just say, buy me out for my cost basis and let's just, you know, you won, you know. <laughs> but but back then I was young and I like had lots of energy and I was like, F this, I'm going to make these guys do the right thing. And so... Like it was like a campaign of letters of persuasion. I talked to every board member. Like I sent lots of letters to like the guy who ran Blue Cross of South Carolina. And Blue Cross of 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 South Carolina was actually a very big business. It was a multi billion dollar business. They owned um, a data processing firm in Dallas that was a billion dollar company. It was in the top five in value of. Of the of the state Blue Cross affiliates at the time of of the independent ones left, and um, and this company had like a I don't I can't remember what the market cap was, but it was like twenty million, you know maybe fifteen or twenty million, 
before it went to five cents. And then it was like, <laughs> you know, like effectively zero. I mean, I do remember because there were 10 million shares outstanding. So like um, it was about a $20 million business when we first well, reached out to, uh, to Blue Cross. And like we very much will try to kind of, uh, you know, we'll play it as, um, you know, we can work together here. Like we're not, you know, we're perfectly aligned, but, you know, we can get aligned. Like you can get what you want, which is like expanded affordable coverage for your, you know, a customer base. And, you know, we can get what we want, which is a little bit, you know, better governance and oversight and like to run this thing like a business. And so we really pitched them on that. Like we went to them with a whole lot of different plans, you know, like, you know, we had pitched to them like, you know, uh, you know, we'll sell down to like uh, to 49%, you know, like you'll have effective control of the board, but like we'll split the board. And we had heard through the, the grapevine, like at some point that like, that like they were likely going to do that um, because they're, you know, the, uh, the company, you know, uh, once it got back to being uh, healthy, you know, wanted to, to go back and expand in, in like in Georgia and, and Tennessee again, but they're, you know, but Blue Cross, you know, didn't want to like to be perceived as like, you know, uh, stomping on the toes of the Georgia and, and Tennessee plans. And so we were, you know, uh, pushing that angle. And ultimately, in the end, they just decided that they wanted to own it. And so we had, I mean, I, I mean, I think it was like a like a like a three or four month uh, negotiation where they would name a price, and you know, because it began like, the stock was at two, they bid us like two and I asked for 10 <laughs> and we went back and forth and it got to five and they were like, well, look, you know, like we're offering you five. It's an absurd premium. I think they thought that five was probably my number. And so they got mad and they walked away. And then like at some point, like we finally uh, settled on uh, 650. So, and in terms yeah, that of, was, Oh, no, sorry. Well, I was going to say that that was like the craziest, um, you know, like when we announced that deal, uh, you know, they wanted to be in charge. And so they did it as an 8K, you know, with no press release, you know, during market hours. And it was a confusing deal to a lot of people. Like they like it looked to some people like they were just buying out us. Right. And so the socks at two, um, there's this thing like announced at 650, which is a buyout. Um, from like a like 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 a company that was going to close the deal, and the stock uh, traded up to like two fifty, and it traded there for like a while. So you could buy that stock for two fifty, you know, knowing with full certainty that you're going to get six fifty. For how it long? It was crazy. It was like, um, I think it was like a week. Yeah, right. You know, and I couldn't buy any. <laughs> You know, and I had people call me like, I'm buying this thing. And I was like, oh, you're a lucky motherfucker. I can't believe that you're buying it, you know? So. So what about uh, the first position that you sort of, you you knew that you would have to be the the, the prime mover activist to, to sort of achieve the ends that you were seeking? Um, or well, any, I mean, any that, that you can think of that are early on that stand out? Yeah, I mean, that was that one. Like, like that was certainly an activist one. I can't remember what, oh yeah. Okay. So we did one in peerless uh, systems. Mm -hmm. So peerless, this was during the financial crisis. So this was 08. And so peerless. It was a net net around about that time. It was a net net. 
and it was it was a company that did uh, software for like printing software you know so they would have like 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 a, um um yeah like when uh you know when people would make printers like they would pay peerless like a little a licensing fee to use a little bit of our stuff to service these old you know you know novel networks and systems that like I guess they kept them in the like in the in in the printers because it didn't you know will cost them anything and perhaps there were a few like hospitals and schools that like were still using it, but they had like like um, a little royalty stream, and like there had been an activist who took control of the business, um, effectively, and then his fund. Um, had to close and so then he he you know essentially just began to like uh, to run peerless and we were like well wait a minute was that locksmith yeah that was uh tim brog right and you know like we didn't really know brog well we were like suspicious is he just doing what the old guys were doing um and so we bought 20 percent. like there was a huge ownership by the wisconsin investment board and um and it was, I mean, and I've had this happen multiple times. Like you'll call up a big holder, um, you know, you know, ask if they're selling, would they, what, you know, would they like to do a transaction? Would they like to do a private transaction without a broker's fee? They're like, no, we're not selling. We're not selling. We're not selling. And then well, one day on the open market, like bam, 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 you know, every bid gets hit. Um, that is what happened to us on Tandy too. Um, and, you know, so like all of a sudden we're like at 20% and, um, and uh, we ultimately got two of the five board seats and and we ultimately pushed for that company to do a self-tender and to effectively liquidate. Um, and it was contentious. Like Tim didn't want to do it. Like he thought it was, you know, a, a better for shareholders to, uh, you know, create value by finding a deal. Mm-hmm. And so after we did the, uh, the self-tender, so we bought it, I think it was around – I could be wrong on the numbers. I think it was around a buck thirty or or a buck forty. We did the self tender at three twenty five. That bought out um, us and a lot of other shareholders. He took this like you know a remaining you know ten million or, or five million dollar stub, and he ultimately uh, bought a business and sold Peerless for seven dollars a share. Wow. So you know uh, Tim actually uh, you know created uh, like like a lot of value for shareholders. We. Um, and I become extremely close friends with him. I, you know, like we were very, you know, like we had a, like like a lot of contention at the time, and I kind of wish I could go back in time and have the relationship that I have with him now, um, because uh, you know I have like a like a very high opinion of him. Um, I followed it because I was buying net nets at the time, and I met yeah. I met Tim at uh, a value investor, uh, an activist conference. Um, at, by the time he got control, and yeah. so it would have been two thousand and eight or nine, I would say, and so I just followed it. I, I didn't. I didn't ever have a position in it after the after it was a net. After he got control, after it was a net net, I just sort of watched yeah. it and followed it. I, I didn't know what had happened to it, so that's that's great. Yeah, no, but I mean, I still love net nets, and we've owned, you know, uh, you know, we own Hilltop Holdings, like as a core position. That was like a net net, uh, peerless. 
I mean, at any given time in our portfolio, we have net nets. Like, so, you know, today uh, we own two things, uh, uh, Rubicon Technologies, which Tim is the CEO of, that's mm -hmm. a net net uh, now. And then we own this thing, Dyadic, D-Y-A-I, which we bought as a net net. And, you know, on one level, the net net line is an arbitrary line. Yeah. Like the fact it's like below cash, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it just kind of means it's cheap. You drew a line in the sand, it's a moving target. Um, but it kind of, you know, what shows you if you have a little bit of discipline and you draw that line in the sand and that, like that line happens to be, you know, trading at a discount, like to liquid assets, you know, well, minus all liabilities and, and you do a little bit of homework on the governance, like you can, we'll still make money that way. And, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a firm believer in, like, I think that investing is hard, but I think a lot of people tend to kind of like overplay how you have to have a differentiated view and you have to be a deep thinker and you have to be the, like the brightest guy in the room and you have to beat the other guy that's on the other side of the trade. And I just like, I don't believe that. I think usually when I'm buying a stock, the guy on the other side of the, of the trade often knows yeah, that I'm getting a, like a good deal. Yeah. Like, you know, they want to sell for whatever reasons they have to sell. And a lot of it is really supply demand imbalances. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Do you, do you want to discuss uh, Tandy Leather? Sure. I mean, that, so that was a classic, you know, same situation. It was extremely cheap. I um, like I went down to meet with the company. I thought they were nice and honest and, and it seemed like they knew their business. And 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 there was a 16 percent holder, uh, Wellington. For some reason, they own 16 percent of this well, very small company. It was probably 30 million or $35 million TEV at that point. Was um, it a net net or a near net net? No, 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 it wasn't. I think it was about like 20 or $30 million market cap. And then they had some cash, but they, I think they had, but they only had like uh, five or 10 million in cash, not that much, but they were building cash. And um, I get the feeling that it, it was at one stage because they have a lot of inventory. I think. That yeah. Was... Well, I don't count inventory. <laughs> You're a, you're a so, very, that's that's really yeah. that's really yeah. Uh, I think on the you know no. the, the old definition the, the the Graham definition where you have to write down you know you get a hundred cents on the dollar for cash you get seventy five cents on the dollar for for inventory and then you get or maybe uh, maybe it's sixty cents for inventory you get seventy five cents for payable something like that. I think yeah, on that basis no. it was. Yeah, like when I say net net, like I mean cash and you mean net cash. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. So, yep, I might be using the word wrong. So, net cash. That's so you know, you know, Hilltop and and uh, Dyadic and Rubicon and Peerless. Like we're all, you know, net cash. cash on the balance sheet. Right. Subtract all liabilities. Like that's the you know. So, so Tandy didn't get there, right. um, but it was cheap, and a Wellington just like decided to blow out one day, and I got to buy at a price where the company probably should have bought it. Um, but they had a policy where they only bought back blocks at a 6% discount to market. Mm -hmm. um, so I got that block. And and then um, it just was this kind of like weird supply-demand imbalance. Now, it later turned into a debacle. I'm on the board now and like we're going through an accounting restatement. And if, if, if you've ever gone through an accounting restatement, it's pure misery. Um, but – like when I bought in, it, 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 like it, just, like it seemed like 
the liquidity uh, the liquidity uh, the liquidity demands of the biggest holder uh, you know set the price at the wrong level right uh, what about the joint because that's a name that lots of folks who who trade in microcaps will know yeah you know I love the joint it's um, what's the thesis the, there what is it sure so it's a it's a chain of chiropractic clinics um, and they have kind of an interesting model where they don't take insurance. It's all private pay. Um, it's like an open floor plan. Like they don't take appointments. Like you walk in, like after your what kind of a, like initial assessment, like you know for your subsequent like like appointments, you're in there like five to seven minutes, and you get your adjustment. You have like like um, I'm a membership key card, and when you talk to people, everyone like the customers love it, the chiros love it. Uh, the owner of the of the franchise loves it, and you know one funny thing about uh, value investing is like I feel like you know we kind of uh, um, everyone puts a discount on growth, right? Because if you're wrong about the growth rate, you get killed. I think deep value guys put a discount on growth. I think there are lots of well, compounders out there who yeah. love it. Yeah. But deep value guys will like, you know, they'll look at a terrible declining business and view trailing earnings as like some kind Gospel. of like impenetrable <laughs> fortress. Like, well, this is at five times earning. Like the joint will trade at a high multiple, but the path to domestic growth is just, it's clear. Like mm. they're like, this company is going to grow. Uh, the growth is, is very low risk. It's a question of how long it takes. Um, you know, that's the kind of like, the big factor with this one. Um, and, and I feel like that's just a dynamic I've seen before. Like, you know, uh, probably the, the best investment in, 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 in the history of our fund was uh, Popeye's. Um, I don't think it was like the best like percentage of return, but just in terms of the risk reward and the impact on our portfolio and, and the kind of, you know, we, like own that thing for many, many, many multiples. And it always felt like the path to creating the value was just clear. And I, and I feel like the joint is like, is very similar. And with Popeye's like, it's, it's a little bit easier to describe with Popeye's because all of the listeners will know what Popeye's is. It was a fried chicken chain. And in the domestic U S they had a very good following They like, the unit economics were uh, were good and improving, and they and they had a good CEO, and um, and they had these huge holes in their geographic footprint. So they were based in Atlanta. Uh, when I bought the stock, there were uh, you know less than ten Popeyes in North Carolina. So you know holes like that, and then they had a huge opportunity for like for like for infill. So they were, you know, uh, strong, like in Houston. And then there was like a two year period where they built like 30 more restaurants in Houston and they all performed well. Mm. And so you see this and you're like, oh my God, this thing. And, it, you know, with franchising, like you can only grow at a particular rate, you know, like you can do the, like the, like the Bojangles thing and just like, you know, like get any old franchisee like that applies and grow extremely fast. But that's not really like the way to do it. And, 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 you know, so Popeye's, you know, it took time to get the machine going, like the franchise growth machine, but they had it in place and, and you just knew like for the next like 10 years, 
Like this is going to be very low risk growth. And that's how it played out. And, and we got the added bonus of, of, a, of an excellent CEO. And I think with the joint, like I like the management team. I think the CEO is good. And I think it's the same thing where, you know, we're finally like we have this, you know, we're franchise machine. It's we're stronger in some regions than others, but there are lots of pockets with like very dependable growth. And, um, you know, so I can get to some, like some pretty big numbers. It's a, it's a $200 million company now. Um, I can easily get to 300 million. Like, I don't know if it's going to be a $500 million company or a billion dollar company, but I don't feel like I have to know, like, like I'm buying it for so cheap that I'm going to do well. The real question is like, like, am I going to do exceptionally well? Right. Unless, unless a uh, coronavirus becomes a, like a terminal <laughs> risk for all of us, you know, uh, your book, Dear Chairman, what was the, uh, the reason for writing and how did that come about? Yeah, I, I, um, you know, I had been teaching at Columbia and I had begun to like to collect these uh, 13D letters and I'd give them to students and, and I kind of had this idea of like, you know, well, someone should just collect a bunch of 13D letters in a book. And That's I was great like, idea. well, you know, yeah. And, and I just thought like, like it must exist. And I even thought about like, you know, like at some point I began to, to think about that and, and then said, well, why do that? I should just actually write a book. I should do like, you know, and narrate a book and it turned into a history. But I did think about, you know, that I should put out a Dear Chairman Companion with just a whole bunch of 13D letters and some commentary from me. And, and I had planned to do that and I just, I, that's like, a, I never that's got still a great idea. I know I should do it. It's would a good idea. So this is an interesting question. Would you start with say like the Robert Chapman, uh, Dan Loeb vintage of letters? Does that is that where it starts, or do you start earlier than that? No, I, where do no, you start? I, I think you would begin with it with like you know to the extent that like you can find things from from the eighteen hundreds, like with the railroads and are they thirteen D? So you just mean that that style of activist letter. Yeah, just like you know, angry shareholder letters. Right. If, That's if a great title. Did, That's a great yeah, title right there. Yeah, pissed off shareholders, a dear chairman companion, and um, you know, because I mean, even in dear chairman, of the eight letters, I think only two of them were like were actually thirteen D letters. Mm-hmm. Now there were proxy letters, which are essentially the same thing, but a few of them like were private letters. So. You know, so like you could have a pretty broad, you know, broad definition. But yeah, so like I had this idea and, you know, I was at a point in my life where I had really little kids and I just felt super unproductive. Like I felt like I wasn't accomplishing, you know, anything with my time. I would go to work and I would just be tired and like I'd read a 10K and just like I couldn't really focus and like I felt like I needed project writing a like, book will get you out of that <laughs> to kick me back in the gear and it and i mean it really worked i mean it really worked it was it felt like a like a dead time in the markets too where look if we if if coronavirus had hit in the middle of 2015 like i would have put that book on the back burner and i would have probably never finished it i got very lucky that i got a kind of quiet you know a nine month uh, stretch where I got to kind of pound it out and it was inspiring. Like, I feel like I just, like I got my mojo back from doing that. And, um, 
What's your favorite like, campaign from the book? I think the Ross Perot one is like my favorite. GM. Yeah, just because it's not so much a campaign, but like having not known that much about him and well, seeing how he, you know, uh, really did correctly, uh, you know, diagnose a lot of the problems, like was pretty cool. Do you think it's and, so uh, much diagnosing the problems as I get the feeling that a lot of people knew what the problems were. It's just having the the grit or the tenacity to kind of push it through to sort of go to war with them. Yeah. I mean, well, it's even worse, right? It's like, he didn't like ultimately do it right. He, he correctly, you know, will, you know, will diagnose the problem. Yes. I mean, like you can completely argue a lot of other people had figured it out, but he figured it out like the whole problem and articulated it incredibly well in a speech to the board that, it's a Harvard Business School case, so like you know, you can find it online. Um, and just the fact that he was the biggest shareholder had articulated exactly what was wrong to the board. He was a business legend. He was Ross, mm. you know, with, you know, freaking Perot, and it still didn't work. Like to me, that's like the beauty of this of of the story. And you know, um, I remember I was uh, listening to an interview with. Uh, a uh, 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 Sheila Kolhatkar, uh, um, who wrote Black Edge, and she talked about how you know when she was doing the book, you know, like the like the publishers and you know what you know what people would ask like, well, what happens if he doesn't go to jail? It's like, is the book going to be well ruined? And it's kind of actually it ended exactly the right way, right? It's like that book is kind of like like a more interesting and important book because he didn't go to jail. I, I have and Black I, Edge and haven't read it. I'm sorry, but you got It's good. It's good, and um, it's a real like to me. It was a real flashback to, like, to my first job. Like, just like a lot of that kind of like the junior analyst, well, you know, trying to get edge of any kind. It was like a reminder, and I definitely worked with guys that, um, you know, will definitely like push the envelope on the well, finding some insider that like had loose lips, you know. So that all kind of like was interesting to relive. But I think the Ross Perot chapter is a better chapter for him having failed than if he had succeeded. Yeah, I I, I wish he'd succeeded, but uh, you, yeah. you might be right. From a literary perspective, maybe it's a better, better chapter. Yeah. Uh, we're sort of coming up on time. Jeff, if folks want to get in contact Already? with you. Yeah, that was that was a really enjoyable chat. I'm, I'm sad it's almost over. If, how, how like they, we didn't even get uh, started, you know. <laughs> how do they uh, go about getting in contact with you or, or where can they follow along? Sure. So I have um, a website, uh, dearchairman.com. I think it's still live. I haven't even looked at it in a while. <laughs> I'm on Twitter, uh, Jeff underscore Graham at Twitter. Um, Jeff Graham at uh, Gmail is my email, you know, address. If you do one of these, like, hey, let's get coffee sometime, I'm like, like I will likely do it, but probably after like a year of forgetting. So you have to be persistent. Um, and that's it. So like, I'm not hard to find. Um, I'm, I'm and and I'm on LinkedIn too. I'm not on Bloomberg anymore. I canceled my Bloomberg, which I'm now regretting. So I'm not on Bloomberg, but maybe I'll be back soon. Oh, that, that that's great Jeff Graham thank you very much cool uh, thanks for having me Toby my pleasure